0: The hour to which the podcast adjourned, having arrived, the podcast is now in order.
1: Let's gather in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service.
2: Here's Sam Doran.
0: Up in a puff of smoke, or uh, I guess a puff of vapor. One day, convenience store shelves are packed with jewels and blues and kangers and all these other vape products and. The next day, they're gone. This draws a lot of blowback for Governor Charlie Baker, and we're gonna talk about that and a few other things on this week's State House Takeout with your weekly takeaways from Beacon Hill, featuring Katie Lennon, Chris Lesinski, and Matt Murphy of the State House News Service. Hi folks. Hi Sam. Hey Sam. What's up, Sam? Hey. Before we get into the pushback on Governor Baker's emergency public health declaration and ban on vaping products in Massachusetts, um, let's, uh, let's dig into uh, the governor's action itself. Katie, you were down at the press conference and then over at the Public Health Council where uh, this uh, was ratified, if you will. We've talked a lot on this podcast, especially recently, about the public health concerns behind vaping and what's all been leading up to this. Um, why... Why did the governor choose this action, do you think, um, in terms of a a public health uh, emergency declaration and this immediate effect ban?
1: Well, what the what the governor said pretty much is that he wanted to to put in place a pause really on the on the sale of vaping products, e-cigarettes, whatever else associated with it until medical professionals can really gather more information on what's causing this this outbreak of mysterious lung illnesses that, that we've heard about in the national news. And there's been a, a few confirmed cases in Massachusetts now. He, um, Governor Baker, as has pointed out, as have many elected and public health officials across the country that really, we don't know what's happening here. We don't know why we don't know more broadly about the any inherent dangers associated with vaping. And while some other states have called for a a flavor ban, focusing on the idea that young people are being attracted to the flavors, Governor Baker here just wanted to kind of put it all on ice for a little bit for this four-month period at least, Um, although they can, the language of the order allows it to cut, cut it short if they need to, extend it if they want to, but at least through January right now, Until there's there's more information available.
0: Uh, Katie, someone from a vaping advocacy group said uh, this week, taking umbrage at the ban, that Governor Baker is not a king. Uh, Under what authority is the governor able to institute a ban like this?
1: Yeah, it was kind of a, a funny comment given that we are talking about Massachusetts here where we've historically wanted to be very clear that we're not governed by kings.
0: But we do call him his excellency. I there guess. you go. <laughs>
1: that's right. But there is, there's a, a section of state law that spells out kind of what can happen when there is a public health emergency, when the governor declares one as he did this week. It gives the, the public health commissioner, who in this case is Dr. Monica Burrell, different different abilities to issue orders for things that are you know officials feel necessary to protect the public health and in this case that was the the four month ban on vaping sales and the accompanying standing order designed to make it easier for people to access products like nicotine gum patches lozenges things like that to fill i guess the the hole um left by their, their inability to get these vaping products and still kind of manage the, the nicotine addiction that might be associated with that. So those orders had to be ratified by the public health council and then signed by the commissioner. So there were a few more people involved than just the governor who had to, to play a role here.
0: Sure. Making Massachusetts the first state in the country to take an action like this on, on vaping. And
1: so, then- That's right. Yeah, there's been a few of those flavor bans, but no one has gone this far with the outright stop of all sales.
0: Right. Um, I think a quote from the governor this week was he couldn't do nothing. Um, But there were some other options in between. Right. Uh, We saw the next day Governor Raimondo from Rhode Island instituted just a a ban on flavored products. Right.
1: That's right. And we've seen, you know, legislation moving here, um, advancing this week out of the Public Health Committee, unanimously endorsed by that panel. To to ban all flavored tobacco in Massachusetts and Speaker DeLeo has started talking about the potential of a comprehensive house vaping bill. Um, And of course, if we remember back in January, the governor proposed extending the excise tax to to vaping products to, to tax those currently untaxed goods. So there are a few other policy options still out there for either after or during this ban.
0: Right. Um, this has been a fast-moving topic, uh, moving just as fast as the, the rise of vaping, if you will. Um, and it makes one wonder perhaps uh, how long it might take a body like the House to put together a comprehensive bill on the topic. Moving to uh, the pushback, if we may. On, on the governor's ban. Matt, there's there's been an argument from some folks that uh, this is going to push users uh, toward black market or illicit vaping products that may have been part of the public health concern in the first place.
2: Yeah, there has been some suggestion, including from Cannabis Control Commissioner Shailene Title, that this ban on all uh, legal vaping products, both uh, the marijuana products and the nicotine products, will just give rise to a bigger black market and potentially potentially uh, turn former smokers who were using these products to try and quit back to cigarettes. But we did have a chance to talk to the governor about some of this criticism, and the governor remained fairly convinced after he said he talked to health experts both here in Massachusetts, uh, doctors at some of our hospitals, as well as federal health officials in D.C., that there is no evidence to date that the uh, illicit market products are are any more dangerous than what is being sold uh, in in legal stores here in Massachusetts and at convenience stores. so he really felt that uh, this ban and the state taking every effort it could to keep these vaping products out of the hands of users both young and old was the safest thing to do uh, while the CDC and others continue to investigate the cause of these uh, lung diseases
0: and Matt, some folks are also arguing that smokers who are trying to quit uh, via vaping uh, might now be turning back to traditional smoking, to cigarettes. uh, But that's also been taken into consideration, right, with um, this uh, order? Sort of,
2: sure. I mean, yeah, there's a couple unintended consequences here that we're seeing and hearing about since the governor put the ban in place. And one, of course, is uh, smokers who, you know, the, the whole justification that vaping companies use for their products is often that they are a transition or a way for smokers to quit and so if you take it away from them uh, they may go back to cigarettes which uh, we also know are very dangerous to people's health which is why the state is incre- increasing its smoking cessation efforts and making uh, more tools and resources available to people who uh, so that they don't go back to smoking The other impact that we're hearing about is these small business owners who invested a lot of their money, Uh, to open vape shops. As as you mentioned, Sam, this industry took off like a rocket and has been growing and growing. And there are a lot of small business owners who own these vape shops.
0: Right. And it affects uh, not just the vape shops, but also a lot of convenience stores who do a big business in vapes as well. Sure,
2: convenience store owners will have to make up that profit, but these vape stores—some of them, this is this is their the business. Only, the only, product. Exactly, and some of them are saying, you know, even if this ban is only four months, uh, they have rent to pay, they have bills to pay, they have utilities to pay, and they they may just close. Now, the governor got asked if he was considering making uh, small business, uh, you know, loans or assistance available to these people right. while uh, this temporary ban is in effect, and he uh, really didn't directly address the question. He kind of just said that his administration's focus right now is on implementing this ban and making sure that it sticks, and he moved on.
0: Yeah. Even with just a four-month ban, if your shop has to close for those four months, that's that's a major hit to the small business owner.
2: Yeah, and we're certainly hearing from people who are just deciding to pack it up.
0: Yeah. Some other business implications that we saw this week uh, were effects on the big companies like Jewel. Katie, the uh, CEO is out over at Juul and they're suspending advertising.
1: Yeah, that's right. It'll be it'll really be interesting to see how Juul kind of reacts to this national that is becoming kind of reevaluating of of the, the vaping industry and its role in different states. You know, we have even at the federal level, the FDA and President Trump have talked about removing flavored products from market. The flavors are a big part of Juul's business model. Um, it is, you know, more pressing in Massachusetts. I think pr- people are probably going to be more concerned with the the small business owners, the neighborhood stores, if you will, than the than the major corporation. But, right. I mean, I'm sure we'll see some significant, some more significant moves by Juul as this situation continues to kind of... React and respond, and and position themselves as more of an ally than an adversary, at least from a um, from a public affairs standpoint.
0: All right. Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about this uh, over the coming four months and beyond. Uh, but meantime, Chris, uh, over to you uh, with something we've been hearing about for well the last three months. It's been in conference, and then. Well before that, uh, the distracted driving uh, uh, or handheld uh, device while driving uh, ban. Chris, we were down in a hearing room yesterday where normally we uh, see committee hearings and and that sort of thing, uh, and we heard some wrenching testimony from family members uh, and survivors affected by distracted driving but this wasn't a committee hearing. It was a press conference um, with these these grieving families uh, pleading with lawmakers to just wrap up their work on, on this bill that's been kind of dragging out over the summer and into the fall. Uh, where are we now? We heard from the speaker this week about one potential option. But uh, uh, where, where do we find ourselves at the end of the week? It's been a—it's—
3: it, it, taken all summer for us to get a really clear look at what exactly is holding this up but that's crystallized a lot more over the past week it seems more and more like the uh the the one remaining issue is not just components of this distracted driving bill that call for tracking of uh racial data for traffic stops but what happens with it with the house's version having that information going to uh an outside entity for review but not being published and the senate wanting that to be published. It's still unclear to all of us if they're going to find a common ground between those two approaches or if they're just going to have to discard that entire issue and uh, circle back around to that for future debate. As you said, that's something that the House Speaker said he
0: wants to see done, but it's not something that senators have signed on to yet. And you're right. We did gain a bit more clarity this week in where the differences lie and that hot keyword uh, NDA popped up non-disclosure agreement the
3: draft compromise bill that came within inches of passing on July 31st before it collapsed at the deadline. Uh, language in that would require any outside entity tapped to do analysis of the traffic stop data to sign a non-disclosure agreement promising not to share that data with anyone else. The NDA wouldn't necessarily apply to uh, publishing a final analysis or a final report, but they couldn't take that information and share it with a civil rights group or with any journalists to perform their own analysis. The only thing that could possibly come out of that is a a
0: single final document taking a look at the results. Sure. So if that's where the differences lie, uh, the question, which I guess was raised by the speaker on Monday, is to split or not to split the bill and to carve out that part for future discussion, right? And whether or not to just pass a clean, simple handheld device ban,
3: yeah, that, that, that's
0: basically the idea that's been floated because
3: both branches and the governor all agree about the the underlying push of this bill, the uh, the language that would require any device use behind the wheel be in hands-free mode. That's something where the language in both versions is almost exactly the same. Uh, for the first time in years, we've got both branches on the same page with this. It's just the the secondary component that's tripping everything up. Sure, Katie?
1: Yeah, and that kind of racial data anti-profiling piece was pitched kind of as a as a compromise at one point to get the people who were concerned about racial profiling on board with that and as you've been following this chris have there been have there been concerns that people might no longer be on board if it's just a clean bill if that part's taken out
3: Yes. Actually, we, we've seen more and more this week. Uh, about 16 different civil rights groups wrote to the, the House Speaker and Senate President this week. They didn't explicitly say they wouldn't support a split bill, but reaffirmed the importance not only of the, the racial monitoring language, but of the Senate's version of the racial monitoring language. We had Senator Becca Rausch announce on Twitter that she would not vote for a single clean bill. We saw Senator Cream on the the, the Senate floor during a Thursday session. Again, Um, saying that she thinks that should be one single bill with all of these components, you know, Senate leadership and the Senate conference committee members have been a little more coy about it. But we can kind of see through the cracks that there isn't a widespread appetite among both branches for a split bill.
0: Sure. Um, I would imagine perhaps some of the senators are worried that they wouldn't be able to get the House back to the table for that future discussion.
3: Yeah. uh, You know, and you can certainly understand that when you think about how many other things the legislature has on its plate to consider. Um, The idea of circling back around to debate a part of a bill that had already been passed in both branches seems like a tall task.
1: And we've certainly seen instances before where things get left in conference with the, the idea that they'll come back to it later and then it kind of you know, the attention fades and it never really comes back out of conference. Sure. With the family members this
0: week trying to keep the attention on this issue, and uh, they were actually calling, Chris, for for passing that clean, simple ban, Um, and uh, they had asked for the speaker and the president to meet with the conference committee on Thursday and talk about that. Do we know if any meeting like that ever took place? We don't know for sure. Um, I do want to
3: say to be clear that those family members stress that they support the the you know anti-racial profiling right. language. They see it as important. They just don't think it's worth holding up a handheld device ban that has been sought for so long. But we don't really know if, uh, you know, to what degree their requests were heard. I spoke to Senator Boncori, the, uh, the Senate chair, after Thursday's session, and he said that he had just met with his House counterpart and had a very productive conversation the day before. But, uh, you know, we're not really sure the extent of their meetings or their work since then.
0: Everything's been kept under pretty tight wraps. Well, thanks for keeping us uh, up to date on that, folks, and uh, and continuing to follow that. Turning over to Another recurring topic. These are all recurring themes we've got this week, and and they remain big themes that we've seen since over the summer. Uh, climate. The climate strike was back on last Friday. We saw those hundreds or even thousands of people up here on and around Beacon Hill and in the State House. Uh, and just a few days afterwards, on Monday, in a, a quiet informal Senate session, uh, Senator Pacheco, who's the Senate Chairman of uh, Climate Change and Global Warming, uh, got up to to make some remarks. Katie, he noted that it's sad, uh, he said, that it's the young people leading on this issue when folks like members of the Senate um, are letting some legislation stand by. Uh, Katie, he pointed out that 36 out of 40 senators are on board with a a pact to advance some climate legislation. Uh, What's he looking to see them do?
1: Yeah, one, one of the things, one of the policies highlighted in that climate new year's resolution was a policy of net zero carbon emissions by 2050 which coincidentally um perhaps perhaps not is now also the subject of a of a bill offered by senator pacheco yeah exactly um so i think that's a policy he'd like to see them certainly tackle but you know and really we've heard even last year and, and in the past from senator pacheco that we've We've got to go bigger when it comes to to climate change, that it's not a a matter that can be addressed incrementally. He he wants to see um, what he described as bold legislation. That's another description we hear a lot around here. Um, he wants some substantial action and, you know, if nothing else, to see a climate bill brought to the floor this fall before the November recess.
0: How likely are we to, to see that happen, given the, the pace of advancing legislation?
1: Well, um, if he's looking for his own bill to come to the floor, that just had a hearing this week. So that would have to be some pretty swift committee action. And we've got a handful of things kind of already expected to be or possibly discussed to be on the legislature's agenda for this fall. We've got a revenue debate in the House. We, uh, We've we got the Ed Funding Bill coming up next week, Next right? week, yeah, getting the ball rolling on that. So I think it's going to be a, a busy fall, and I, I anything could pop up at any moment, but that hasn't been explicitly laid out by leadership as a fall priority.
0: And Matt, later that afternoon, you were over there at a hearing of uh, Senator Pacheco's committee, uh, an oversight hearing with uh, the state uh, climate officials, uh, the Energy and Environmental Affairs Secretary, Katie uh, Theo Harities, uh for an update on planning for a regional carbon emission reduction pact here in uh, the northeast states uh, with that initial plan coming up just around the corner. What did we hear about that?
2: Yeah, this was uh, Pacheco again and Senator Mike Barrett, the two leaders of the Senate Global Warming Committee, and they uh, had the secretary in to update them on this uh, TCI, the Transportation Climate Initiative, that's 12 states, including the, uh, the District of Columbia, trying to get together on a regional pact to take, uh, carbon emissions out of the transportation sector, cars, basically. Uh, and they wanted an update and, uh, you know, long story short, uh, things are progressing. Uh, the secretary said they're still on track. The States are hopeful that they will have an agreement in place by December. A framework is supposed to be released sometime in early October. Uh, Senator Pacheco was pleased that this would be out before a summit that he is helping to organize as part of the Council of State Governments is convening at Yale University. Over a weekend, Secretary Theo Harrodes is going to travel down there, talk to legislators about uh, the role that they will play, because uh, you know each individual state is hoping to come away from this with a good chunk of money that people will pay for you know the right to uh, exceed some of these carbon emission caps from the transportation sector and then the question is how do you spend that money uh, there will probably be parameters around uh, carbon emission reduction programs that they will uh, try to put this money into uh, but this all goes to uh, furthering uh, what katie was just talking about which is the senator's push Uh, for the state to adopt a net zero by 2050 carbon goal. And, you know, the senator didn't uh, pull this out of thin air. This is coming out of the the National uh, Climate Assessment that was published last uh, fall, I believe, and uh, some other national studies. And he says that uh, despite their best efforts when they did the Global Warming Solutions Act, uh, the current statutes don't uh, keep pace with the current science. And that's what he's trying to get at.
0: Senator Barrett commended uh, Secretary Theodore Harry's on the state being gutsy, he said, in terms of the TCI. Uh, But he also criticized the Baker administration's, um, quote, infatuation with uh, with planning around climate. Uh, What was he trying to get at there?
2: Yeah, Barrett, uh, Senator Barrett, from, he is a Lexington Democrat, and he's also a bit frustrated with uh, w- the, the pace of climate action here on Beacon Hill. And uh, in addition to the TCI that the administration is pursuing, there's a couple other things going on uh, behind the scenes. And they have, the administration has commissioned a study of what it would take for the state to both reach its goal, its statutory goal of an 80% reduction in emissions uh below 1990 levels by 2050, as well as what it would take to get to net zero. And uh, the Secretary said that this was uh, this study due to come out uh, next summer, this would lay out a range of options of what it would take to get there. And this is to be followed up uh, by uh, December 2020 with the administration's actual plan for achieving its carbon goals. Uh, That could be the current 80%. That could be net zero, that could be something in between. But Senator Barrett uh, actually quite critical of the administration saying that they're uh, getting into this I think he called it scenario proliferation, where they they like to put out a lot of options for how the state could do this and how the state could do that, but they're not committing to anything, uh, and in the senator's mind, they're wasting time.
0: So, in other words, too much talk, not enough action is what he said? Too much
2: talk, too much planning, not enough action, not enough uh, commitment to a plan. Hmm. Uh, He also interestingly brought up uh, his frustration with the fact that the final climate plan won't be out until December, which he said will be after the 2020. Elections preventing candidates from having a debate uh, on the trail next summer over whether or not the state is moving fast enough and in the right direction on climate.
0: Interesting. All right. That's all the time we have for this week, folks. But thanks very much for joining us again. And see you next Friday.
2: Thanks, Sam. See you later. Good weekend. State House Takeout is a production of the State House News Service. And for a daily fix of State House headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.